Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Nathan Morley. I'm the curator of the exhibition Celestial Empire, Life in China, 1644-1911. Our meeting here at the National Library of Australia in Canberra, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call home. Tonight, we continue with the series of lectures that the National Library of Australia is holding in cooperation with the Australian Centre on China and the World at the Australian National University. This is, in fact, the eighth lecture in the series. And looking around the room, I can see that many people have come to many of these lectures, so I thank you again for your attendance. I'd also like to suggest that 10 lectures is almost enough for a university course. <laughs> so those of you who have come to more than half, you'll be asked to sit an examination at the end of the series. And for your revision, I'd like to point out that all, these series, all the lectures in this series are actually available online at the NLA's website, so you can revise for this examination at your leisure. Now, the Social Empire and its public programs, of course, have been the result of a collaboration with a great number of organisations. Of course, the first, we have to thank the National Library of China for agreeing to lend us so many fantastic items, which will remain here until May 22nd, so only three weeks left now. Our commercial partners have been supporting this exhibition include um, Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wonder One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, and TFE Hotels. Our event partners include, of course, Australia, the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World, and Asia Society Australia. Our government partners are the federal government through um, the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program and the Australia China Council with the um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And we also, of course, are supported by the ACT government through Visit Canberra. I'd also like to thank you again for um, supporting this, this series and supporting the exhibition. Tonight, we have Dr. Jeremy Clark, who will speak to us about the Jesuits in China and around the world and their role in East-West cultural exchange. Dr. Clark was, in, in the 1980s, one of the six inaugural recipients of the Australian Young Scholar in China, China Scholarship, which allowed him to live in Beijing and Shanghai for a year after finishing high school. Later, he completed an undergraduate degree in Chinese language at Macquarie University, then degrees in theology and missiology, followed by a PhD in Pacific and Asian history at the Australian National University. And I might note that Jeremy was in fact finishing his PhD just as I was starting mine. And he was very much someone I looked up to at the time. Uh, more recently, he has spent a number of years as an assistant professor in the history department um, of Boston College. He's currently a visiting fellow um, at the Australian Centre on China and World at the ANU and still also a research fellow in Asian studies at Boston College. Um, his research to date has focused on East-West cultural exchange from the 16th century to the present, and he has a particular interest in books, images, and photographs. Um, tonight, Dr. Clark will speak to us on the role of Jesuits in this cross-cultural exchange of knowledge. He'll be discussing the roles of books that the Jesuits wrote and the libraries that they founded around the world. Jeremy has very kindly agreed to um, answer questions that you might have about his um, presentation, so I'll ask you to save those to the end. Um, but please um, join me in welcoming Dr. Jeremy Clark. Thank you very much, Nathan, and congratulations on a wonderful exhibition. Um, it's 
always humbling to be introduced, but in this case it's rather funny because uh, Nathan's a rather tall man and, in fact, I've spent most of my life looking up to him. <laughs> but uh, it's great to actually be back here at uh, Canberra where I did do my doctorate at the Australian National University and so I would like to join with uh, Nathan and acknowledge the traditional owners as well and particularly on a day, in fact, when um, Patrick Dodson was welcomed into the Senate. Uh, I'm also uh, conscious that it's important to recognise the traditional owners because um, today and tonight and what this library does in some ways and what the exhibition has done is privilege books and words and, and written culture. And so while I'm talking about that, obviously um, that is not... Um, it, it in no ways meant to uh, downplay the fact that there are many ways of preserving, transmitting and saving culture. Today, however, we are talking about books... As Nathan said, part of my role, part of my work has looked at uh, uh, East-West cultural exchange, the globalisation of knowledge uh, from the 16th century to the present. During the course of my doctorate, I really wanted to look at what was happening in China post-1975, but my um, doctoral supervisor, Dr Jeremy Barme, who was the uh, founding director of the Centre for China in the World, um, kept on pushing me back earlier and earlier and earlier. So I've kind of got stuck in the early 16th century in some ways. Um, so I do look forward to a time to dealing with the present. But for the moment, I'm actually dealing with books and objects, material objects, and so therefore it uh, seemed very fitting to be able to come along here to the National Library and talk about some of these wonderful things on display. During the course of this uh, lecture, I'll also be referring to a website I had the uh, privilege to work on and, in fact, produce uh, all the um, content and, and uh, mine another library for a lot of books. And this website uh, tells much of the story and much of the history that I'll be re reciting tonight. So I know many of you actually uh, find scholars and very, have retentive minds and memories here so won't need to cheat for your exam that Nathan's setting you. But if you do need, in fact, to go to the cliff notes for this period of history, you can go to this website, richie.bc.edu, or beyond Richie. Uh, I'll talk about why I call it that. Uh, and this website actually has a whole range of fantastic books, uh, which are quite rare and unique, which, uh, some of which are also contained here at our wonderful National Library. And that's a fitting point, actually, to congratulate also the director of the General of the National Library, Anne-Marie Schwertlich, to say what it's fantastic the way that, A, the library has such a wonderful collection, but, B, that they support exhibitions like this. So these books here, I've sought to uh, link the books that are in here. For instance, Confucius Sonarum is uh, also in the book in the exhibition that Nathan has curated. So you can come back and look at this in your own time, and it has uh, many different sort of sites to look at. Uh, during the course of my lecture tonight, I will actually get back and refer to that at some stage. So I think I've killed enough time with that. So books and the transmission of knowledge and the material objects that contain this knowledge are, as we all know, fascinating and wonderful and beautiful and rare and priceless and can be small and can be large. And they're, they're contained in, in private libraries and public libraries. And thinking about what was happening here that Nathan and the people at the library here and at the, uh, at the Guotu in Beijing were doing, I wanted to look at actually the role of books the role of libraries, particularly in the early modern world, and then connecting with that Jesuit history. But before that, I thought, well, what do libraries do? And I had the privilege to be around a number of uh, great libraries in recent years, and I was in New Haven in Connecticut, the home of the Bulldogs, 
which is Yale University. And there they had the, uh, the Stirling Memorial Library. And the librarian was asked, she was asked to actually talk about the role of libraries. And she said, look, it's at the heart of the university, what they do there. Yale has 15 million volumes in its collection. She went on to say that teaching and research, of course, they've changed and they have volumes which are digitised. The website I just showed you, richie.bc.edu, we deliberately digitise so that you can be in Canberra or Kashgar, in uh, Stockholm or Shanghai and look at those works. But they actually say, although teaching research have changed, their view is preservation, dissemination of knowledge is at the, is at the core. You've actually got to get the books there, of course, so in a rather uh, poignant and funny way, here in 1718 we can actually see through the cold winter of Connecticut this cart laden with books travelling to New Haven. Moving forward a bit in history to Boston, Boston Athenaeum. There it's a private library, it's a gorgeous building on the uh, Freedom Trail. If you've been to Boston, it looks out over one of those cemeteries where Samuel Adams uh, is buried, Benjamin Franklin's parents, all this sort of stuff, and it has this wonderful reading room filled with fantastic books, one of which actually is a uh, rare item. It's actually, for those wordsmiths out there, it's a rare instance of anthropodermic bibliopagy. Boston Athenaeum is also uh, found, is found at the 10 and a half Beacon Street, not 11 or 12, it's 10 and a half Beacon Street. So quirky in some ways, but it does what the Yale, Stirling Memorial Library and other libraries do. It seeks to preserve and augment its collections. First library in Australia, the uh, Mitchell Library, the uh, State Library of New South Wales, are uh, also here we can see, this is in the foyer of the Mitchell Library as you go in. It's on the left-hand side. It's near that uh, ma wonderful map on the floor. And this is what they uh, say as nowadays we use such prosaic language as mission statement. Here they're thankfully actually just articulating in a much more um, beautiful way what they think they're doing with books. There is a mission statement for the Mitchell Library and they say that they're out to strengthen the community by being the trusted provider of quality information by providing equitable access, by collecting and preserving Australia's heritage, promoting its own role as a cultural destination, and they do things like have um, Bloom Day, for instance, uh, celebrating James Joyce's Ulysses, and they also collaborate with other libraries around the place. So we can see that libraries hold this really privileged spot. Some of you may have seen this stone before. Does anyone know where this is? Hand up if you actually know where this is. Righto. Homework. As for those of you, when you leave this building this evening, you look on your left-hand side and at the end of a stone column holding up this room is a glass plate and under that glass plate is this stone. And it's, uh, I think, amazing and interesting because it uh, brings us back to what I said at the beginning about non-literate cultures, but libraries are also about preserving things more than just books or folios or maps it's also preserving memories, preserving stories, preserving the pursuit itself of knowledge. So we here in Canberra are connected with those people then. In 1973 they say men, but those who were peripatetically seeking conversation about knowledge. So the Greeks very kindly reminded us that here in Australia we too are connected with this grand pursuit at the National Library. Well, what is the National Library doing? It itself has a mission statement. And in 1960, the Library Act said that the National Library 
was to uh, ensure that documentary resources of national significance relating to Australia and the Australian people, as well as significant non-Australian library materials, such as those shown in our exhibition uh, here, Celestial Empire, they are collected, preserved, and made accessible either through the library or through other arrangements. It goes on to also say that we are, the library supports learning and creative and intellectual endeavour and contributes to the vitality of Australian culture and heritage. Some of my students at Boston College took great pride in the fact that they never, ever entered the library in the college. Some students think books are boring, dull and old. Our challenge, I suppose, as scholars, teachers, people who like reading, is actually to remind people that it's more than that. What we're doing is collecting, preserving, making accessible and disseminating the stuff that's contained in the books or in the memory of the books or in the people who sit around the cafe and talk about these books. Why so? Well, that's what I really want to explore today in this lecture through the discussion of another time, not so far ago as the Greeks in the Agora, but nevertheless from our time, something like 400 years ago, more than 400 years ago. Ritchie wrote to a man called Chung Da Yue. Now, Chung Da Yue here was a publisher in the late Ming. He and his brother were well known for publishing bestsellers. And one of the things they published was a thing called Chung Zimoyue, which was the ink garden of Master Chung. For Chinese scholars, the, uh, the ink garden, so-called, because of the ink pad that it would often have uh, fantastical trails on it, or the ink, of course, was used to make representations, pictures, uh, etc. Uh, it was itself an object of great beauty. So Chung Da Yue and his brother thought it would be wonderful to collect, to compile, basically not an early coffee book, but really, I suppose, an early tea book, if you like, but a compendium of wonderful illustrations. He asked this strange man from the West, this missionary who came from afar, if he had a collection of images or some images he could give. And Richie said, yes, I do. And so this Chinese-produced bestseller from uh, the early 1600s also contained four images that the Italian Jesuit missionary had brought with him to China. He said in the letter where he said, yes, I'm happy to help you in this endeavour, he, Richie pondered upon why being printed, being in print form, being in a world of books was important. And he said, those who live 100 generations after us are not yet born. And I cannot tell what sort of people they will be. Yet thanks to the existence of written culture, even those living 10,000 generations hence will be able to enter into my mind as if we were contemporaries. And here the quotation continues as it's on the screen. As for those worthy figures who lived a hundred generations ago, although they too are gone, yet thanks to the books they left behind, we who come after can hear their modes of discourse, observe their grand demeanour, and understand both the good order and chaos of their times exactly as if we were living among them. So libraries throughout time, I would argue, have been and are more than just books and bookshelves. They're about the collection, preservation and dissemination of knowledge. They're important means of sharing in the pursuit of wisdom which takes place, as we've seen, over time and across cultures and generations. They're both bastions 
and also harbingers. They're bastions of knowledge and harbingers of possible futures. It's important to study this period of history because sometimes when people study uh, the early modern world and talk about dissemination of knowledge, they actually forget that the dissemination of knowledge was occurring beyond just the confines of Europe that it was actually taking place in amazing ways between China and Korea and Japan, between China and India, from India to Africa and the Middle East, Arabia, and from there also into Europe. So I put this up because I really do like the website. It's a thing called uh, Mapping the Republic of Letters. It's a project uh, which seems to have run out of funding, as many libraries often struggle with, uh, seemed to run out of funding, but a few years ago, some scholars at Stanford were working on this Republic of Letters. Uh, the, you might be, not be able to read the print, but they, they collated things like John Locke's letters, Voltaire's letters, Swift's letters, letters they wrote, letters they received, places like Dublin or Oates, places like London and indeed Twickenham. And they actually showed over this period from 1700 to 1750, let's... Uh, uh, Adam, I'm just trying to get to... There we go, that should work. And we go this way, here we go. Uh, nope. Um, what I want to show... Yep, we'll just uh, actually play that. Here we are. Okay, we got it. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, sorry, can we go to that website there, uh, please? Adam. The Republic of Letters one. Um, we were going to load it up. Oh, if we, oh, here we go, it's up top. Yep, I can do that. I'll just show you actually uh, what they can do, uh, amazing visually. So between 1700 and 1750, this amazing interconnectedness, the fantastic republic of letters that existed in Europe at the time, has, I argue, sorry, bear with me, we're not doing too much of this later, so we're keeping on the main, main game. <laughs> Uh, Adam will have to go back to the main um, PowerPoint, sorry. Yep, that's good, thank you, that's good. Um, uh, it's that one, yes, thank you. Right, beauty. Uh, they also, um, there's another website which you may wish to look at which digitises a lot of this and traces the connections. Uh, it's a thing called uh, the Electronic Enlightenment. They forget, I think, or underplay the fact that there was much exchange happening between China and this period. I chose this page because you can see most of the people are effectively working in the 18th century. But they don't mention a man called Antoine Gaubil, G-A-U-B-I-L. He lived in Beijing between 1722 and 1759. He was an official correspondent of the Academy of Science in Paris... He was writing about uh, astronomy, he was writing about comets, he was writing about uh, Chinese customs. He was also uh, an official correspondent of the Imperial Academy of St. Petersburg and was communicating them with, about things like botany, Judaism in China, a whole range of those uh, uh, eclectic items, as you do. And he was also a correspondent over that 37-year period with the Royal Academy of England. So there can be, I think, at times a forgetting of the fact that China was very much connected with the world or, let's put it another way, the world wanted to be connected with China at this time. And Nathan very um, succinctly summarises the way that that worked in the, 
in his Celestial Empire um, exhibition when he says, information about life under the Qing was transmitted abroad by various means. Korea and Japan were critically involved, as I say, in part because they had a shared written language. But there were official ambassadors, there were exchanges with Tokugawa Japan, and there were also Europeans, even though they had limited uh, opportunity, including a few Jesuits living in China who undertook the study of its language, history and culture. And these were then supplemented by foreign accounts from Guangzhou, Canton, or by reports from those few embassies that made the journey to the capital. Nathan has uh, collected a range of materials and books uh, and spread them throughout those rooms downstairs. I'm sure everyone's seen the exhibition. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. I'm talking now, over the next course, about the end room, the room on the right-hand side, which talks about looking from afar. This exchange, uh, which predated the period that Sanford was looking at and continued on after was rich, vital and wonderful. And here is some evidence of that, these material objects. Up, uh, down below is the Duhald Encyclopedia, which was produced uh, in France and became tra quickly translated by the famous printer Edward Cave in London. Uh, it was serialised and published and uh, images were ripped off and uh, images of ginseng and images of tea and images of the Great Wall and images of Chinese weddings and martial uh, endeavours were all contained in the Duhald Encyclopedia and it became the source of much knowledge in Europe and other places about China at this time. The third book is, the, is Clavius, Christopher Clavius, a Jesuit polymath who taught in the uh, Roman College. He was the uh, mathematical teacher of Matteo Ricci he here wrote a commentary on Euclid, so Euclidean geometry. That book was carried by the Jesuits in their saddlebags or indeed their ship trunks off to China and translated into Chinese in the uh, end of the 16th, early 17th century. Guy Tashar, who ended up, he was one of the mathematicians of Louis XIV, went to China and he wrote his accounts about his journey and observations along the way. And then the uppermost book is... Another commentary on Aristotle, which was used in the College of Coimbra in Portugal, which was the university where young Jesuits studied before they caught the ships from Lisbon, down the Tagus, around Africa, past Goa and into Macau and then China. And they too sought to translate Aristotle into Chinese. So that Republic of Letters that we saw so beautifully illustrated, I think could be augmented all the more with some of these sort of works. Here is one of the versions of uh, the translation of Euclid. So Christopher Clavius, in that whole early Renaissance, the great humanism, uh, where they sort of sought to um, regain the knowledge that had been lost, or supposedly so, in, in Europe at the time. Clavius wrote these commentaries on Euclid on the left. It was taken by the missionaries over to China, and then the missionaries worked with their local friends. And this is why it's beyond Ritchie. It's not just the Jesuits. In fact, it's more than the Jesuits. It's way more than them. It's the people they worked with. As is contained in this text, here you can see that the great scholar from the West, which is what it says there, Limar Dole or Matteo Ricci, he spoke about, he talked about, he taught on Euclid's geometry and Xu Guangxi, his great Chinese friend, who we'll see in a minute, he actually then translated in conversation with Ricci, Euclid into Chinese. They had to work out what's a parallel line in Mandarin. What's an angle of incidence and an angle of reflection? They had to engage in this amazing conversation 
For me, that would be the chaos of the times, but they actually brought much order and wisdom to that conversation. That occurred, this, this publication occurred in the early 1600s. It is important to note, however, and I, I've said it, but I'll say it again, that it's more than just the Europeans, and in fact the Europeans were very much a small part of it, as Nathan says in his text. It's also all about how it was received, how the Chinese translated it, how they incorporated it, or how they rejected it. This is the large map on display in the uh, exhibition in the first room as you go in, first room, kind of as you go in, on the far wall. Uh, it's a map of Beijing, comes from the Daoguang period, 1821 to 1850. It's uh, small on this screen, because I'm, but it's, it's probably as big as the screen, if not maybe a touch more. And really this is the shape of... Uh, you can see Imperial Beijing through its walls in some ways similarly today or through the ring roads and the metro system. But, so the shape is this. What is important, however, is it also tells the tale of this east-west exchange because near the third gate here, Trenglin, you can see a small building just in the corner. And that small building, which is incorporated in a map from the mid-19th century, is of a Tianzhutang. This is the church built on the site of Ritchie's own church, which he was constructing and living on that site in 1609 before he died in 1610. So it's a two-way exchange. Stanford and these other works are fantastic and excellent and wonderful, and I think what they've done is really remind us of the great exchange. But we do need to bring in Asia into that exchange, or, if we like, forcibly drag Europe to remember that Asia's always been in that exchange. Another, just because it's a great image, uh, another example of this is a Jesuit scientist, another one of the scientists, a man called Terentius, who uh, my students always used to love because he's easy to remember. His other name was Shrek. So Shrek went off to Beijing, and there Shrek is working on um, as a scientist, and he actually dies. He wasn't there that long, unfortunately. He would have produced a whole lot more, but he took with him a whole range of books as well, books, diagrams, treatises, and these two were then translated into Chinese. Here we have a, um, a selection of one, shows how to make a, a pulley in a, a well system, and it's uh, on all, using all those cogs, etc. You can see the limit of my science. Um, but he, and this is called from a book that was ended up translated as uh, a book of wondrous things. So this exchange was amazing and worked in several ways. I want to talk about now, in the time remaining, three major examples which are also either displayed in the exhibition downstairs, but these books are all owned by the National Library of Australia. So it is fulfilling its mandate from 1960 to talk about Australian and non-Australian things that somehow the National Library has a copy of this book, and that is its title on the right, Concerning the Christian Exposition, etc., um, it was initially published in 1615, I'll talk about that, but we have here at the National Library a 1616 edition in, in book form. I'll talk about this. I'll also talk about uh, Martino Martini's Atlas, uh, the new Atlas of China, which is, uh, there is a section on, the, the book itself is on display downstairs in the exhibition. And then I'll finish up with talking about Confucius Sonarum Philosophus, uh, Confucius, the philosopher of China, uh, written by Kuplay and others, uh, which itself is also in display in that final room, all of which are held by the National Library um, here in Canberra. So, Matteo Ricci's journal. This was a collection of the writings of Ricci. 
uh, which was, uh, it's a Latin translation. Some of his writings were in Portuguese, some were in Italian, a few things were in Chinese. And a man called Nicolas Trigot, this Belgian of the same society, um, sailed back to Europe <coughs> and proceeded to translate on his long voyage and overland journey um, these works into a whole. And this is what has come down to us. He was given that job uh, by the Jesuits in Beijing. They wanted him <coughs> to write about their work, to talk about what they were doing, not just to exchange and disseminate the knowledge, but also for other purposes. They were conscious that a lot of the stuff that had been written about China prior was quite fanciful. A lot of the stuff that's written about China today is quite fanciful. But they wanted to actually write from their experience. Matteo Ricci entered China in 1583 and uh, Trigot travelled off to Europe in, uh, I think, 1611, 1612. So this is on the basis of over 20 years' experience of having to learn the language. Uh, Ricci was involved in... Uh, a house was invaded by some robbers. He terribly sprained his ankle, had a limp ever after. He was shipwrecked on one of the inland rivers. They um, had house fires. Some of their workers were uh, tortured and executed. Uh, he had the problems of actually learning the language in the first place. And he was a long way from home. He had a lot of things he could talk about and reflect upon in his experience. He did make the comment, or Trigori made the comment in the introduction, that up to the present there are two kinds of authors who have written about China. Those who have imagined much and those who have heard much and have published the same without due consideration. They didn't want to be those sort of people. He described everything from the beverage called cha or tea this beverage is sipped rather than drunk and is always taken hot. It is not unpleasant to the taste, being somewhat bitter, and it is usually considered to be wholesome, even if taken frequently. He commented on gunpowder, they commented on rivers, they commented on the number of boats, they commented on how the houses were built, and they also commented on the Christian expedition. So successful was this book that, as I said, it was published in 1615, uh, then subsequently after it was translated very quickly within 10 years into French, Italian, Spanish and German. The 1616 edition that is held here at the National Library was published in Cologne. Uh, the, the, this image here was published in Augsburg in Germany. And then a further four Latin editions were published and then selections from it were translated into English, some of which were incorporated in the famous Purchase His Pilgrim. If you're into this period of early modern history, you know there are forever Ritchie uh, anniversaries and celebrations. Uh, so the most recent one was 2010, which was the 400th anniversary of his death, which then saw a whole round of new publications about Ritchie in Chinese, in French, Italian and in English. And some of them also went beyond Ritchie, thankfully, and talked about the Chinese involved. So this was a fantastic printing success. It was a collection of... Uh, Accounts, as I said, that were translated, compiled, collected, printed, disseminated, and then preserved. Trigot had a job when he went back, and this is what I want to talk about, the role of libraries. It's all very well to have a book like this, but where does it fit in the grander scheme of things? That's the what, the book, but, but so what? Well, Trigot had this task. He had to propagandise about the mission. He had to actually say, look, 
we are doing our best. Japan at the time had a lot of Christians. We know that because they were all getting killed under the Tokugawa shogunate. But the Jesuits were embarrassed because in China there didn't seem to be such a same rate of conversion and that puzzled them ever since. So he had to propagandise and say, well, look, this is why we're doing what we're doing. He had to seek money so that they could actually pay for what they're doing. They were always poor, which is why Ritchie made a lot of things like astrolabes, why they translated dictionaries, why they actually became tutors. They were poor. They also wanted to bring together books for a library in Beijing. So printing this book was a very deliberate ploy at trying to loosen up the coffers, the pockets, the wallets of rich Europeans to give them money and books they could take back to China. So libraries are also necessarily, sadly, engaged in the pursuit of benefactors, patrons and supporters and can't survive otherwise. Ever was it thus then, so too is it now. Trugot was amazingly successful, perhaps because he picked his mark. I'll get back to that. Um, uh, uh, I'll get to that. Let's go through this slide. What's interesting on this slide, of course, you'll notice that on the, on the right is Matteo Ricci uh, dressed as a Chinese scholar, so there's the whole thing of imaging. Look at us. We know what we're talk about, talking about. We're kind of as though we're Chinese ourselves. And here is Francis Xavier on the left, who died on the coast of China, who wanted to get to China but could not. Famously went around the Cape of Good Horn, went to Mozambique, went to Goa, worked in southern China, went through the Malacca Strait, worked through uh, Malacca, those sort of places, ended up in Japan. From Japan, came back, finally died on the coast of China. It's tiring telling the story. Imagine his life. He died in 1552. That was the birth year of Matteo Ricci. So here you have Ricci beckoning, if you like, or gesturing to Xavier. Your great dream we have now fulfilled. We're in the process of fulfilling. So there's much theatre and theatrical stuff happening in that image. So too, down below, you'll see the map. And several things to note in this map, because it comes import becomes important later on. One is that the map is on its side, whereas at the time, the printers in Europe were printing with north as we would have it nowadays, up the top. But for some reason, it may even be something as simple as fitting it in. But the, the globe is turned around. It does include... So there is an image of the Great Wall already in the 1615 uh, representation. So the map down below, and then there's also in information about the printing. And so here the printer has reminded us that his name, Christopher Mangium, he comes from uh, Augsburg, the uh, Latin name there, Augusto Vindilius, uh, and the year, the Anno Christi year of our Lord, and over on the side, is the 1615. Cut off there is the name of the engraver, who actually was a very famous engraver as well. So we see that uh, everything was quite deliberate in the printing of this book. So it's one thing to collect the uh, actual books to make into a library, but there are real questions and interesting periods of, of study around how they got them. So they can't do it, you know, libraries can't exist without the actual books themselves. An interesting question we might have time to get into. How, how did the books become published? How did they actually end up where they are? Well, Nicholas Trigot, as I said, was very importantly engaged in that task. When, once he got back to Europe, he successfully got the book published. He had to deal with Jesuit superiors. They chose Augsburg for a number of um, almost happenstance reasons. 
rather than Rome or rather than Antwerp or rather than Paris or rather than Lisbon. He then travelled all around Europe. He was recruiting, he was begging, and he was also buying and seeking books. He became a bit of a celebrity. This is a a painting by Rubens. Um, This version actually is in the um, Met, I think, in in New York. Um, There's a line drawing uh, elsewhere. But uh, Trigo was quite a quite a well-known figure at the time, going around seeking to build this library. One way they managed to do it was through their dedication. Some of these early books tell us, tell us as much about the networks and the republic of letters, or those who were involved in the republic but not so seen, because of who was actually being the book being given to. If you're into typefaces and you're into sort of uh, imagery and semiotics and things like that, so the bit about China is less important. Ritchie's kind of important, but Paul V is as important as the Christian expedition here, you know, if you notice in terms of sizing. Now that's also balance and it's also keeping things in, in giving a perspective there on the, on the frame. But even so, <laughs> they're saying to this Pope, hey, you, you, you're the guy who can help us here. You can help us because we're the ones working on the front line taking the word of God around the place, and we want you to help us. And he did. And because he could. A, as Mel Brooks said about the king, it's good to be the king. Well, if you're a Borgia, it's good to be the pope. And he uh, was a pope for a long period of time, and he was, had a lot of money, and he was connected with many people who did have money or connected themselves. And this is a um, portrait by Caravaggio. So we've had Rubens painting Trigo, we've had Caravaggio painting Paul V, and Trigot is doing whatever he can to get those books, which he did, and he managed to take back with him to Beijing. They were combined with the books that Ritchie had, and sometimes Ritchie got sent, and they then later on were uh, combined with books brought back by uh, Johann Adam Charles von Bell, who was an astronomer, worked in Beijing in the 1660s. Charles brought another huge collection of books. Those three collections, the Ritchie, Trigot and Charles collections, became known as the Beitung, the North Church collection. And then in the 50s, they actually were, because this is on podcast, it'll be um, politic, they were collected, shall we say. They were gathered together into what is now known as the National Library in Beijing. So the works that are on display here from the National Library are neighbours with some of those books that Trigot amassed when he went to Europe all those years before. The Jesuits were very self-aware about what they were doing, and this is a wonderful image uh, of their sense of their interconnectedness. This is from Kirscher in the middle of the 17th century, where fancifully, in the sense it's a fancy, it's fun, this is actually an, uh, a horoscope, a clock, showing the Jesuit world and the various hours in the provinces around the world and the way that they're all connected. And up on the left-hand side, you can see Asia incorporated as well. So, moving along um, to the second image that I talked about. We have the new atlas of China by uh, Martino Martini. Uh, And this is on display downstairs. Uh, What is interesting, again, in the frontispiece is what's being said, who's being referred to, who is the dedication to, uh, and also you can see I've highlighted the phrase coming out of um, the mouth of the person sitting on the... Um, it's meant to be a Pope, actually, I think, with the tiara. But uh, it actually says, it's a quotation from Isaiah, go you swift messengers to nation tall and smooth. So as in, this is ordained, we're meant to do this, we're okay, we can go to China. And by the way, Martini says, I'm bringing back the new atlas of China. So he's, he's bringing back new knowledge. This is 1656. 
Interestingly, we see that the map is now turned around of China. The Great Wall is still on display. And Martini is credited with really popularising this sort of image or sense of the Great Wall and thereby making it wrong for us because we know it's the Great Walls of China. It's not actually one great crenellated barrier. It's several walls, a whole range of different shapes. But you can see here. And uh, the printer Blau, the Blau, famous Blau family, is also... Uh, if you like, I, th I think they're having a bit of fun too. The cherubs are sort of reminding people of the map-making and globe-building craft. The Blaus in Amsterdam were given the task of printing this book and they were not only printers, but they made globes. This terrestrial globe here showed at the bottom left was made at the end of the 16th century, early part of the 17th century, and it was taken by uh, German missionaries to the US in the 19th century and is now in the library at St. Louis University. You'll notice that, again, there's a map of China there, so Blouse was saying, look at us, we make all these sort of things. And if you do notice, I thought I'd keep on moving on, but the Northwest Cape of Australia is also featured in the globe. Down below the ridge for those of you who And for that period, it's quite accurate. Martini, like Trigot, was engaged in conversation, engaged in this whole series of engagement with uh, people involved in the Republic of Letters. Uh, and it wasn't just in Latin, it was also in German, and this is a famous series of letters uh, in German. And uh, this, these books, we don't have copies here, unfortunately. We do have a print from this series in the National Library, but not the whole books themselves. The print actually is of, I think, um, Palau, uh, Palau, the Palau Islands. Um, but anyway, this is actually one of the very early maps of California, done by the nephew of Martini, a man called Eusebio Kino, who became a missionary to the Americas rather than to China. Just showing again the interconnectedness. Martini's life journey, his journey to take back that knowledge which became printed in that book, which we now have on display, was a miracle. It was an amazing uh, feat. He had to go to Hangzhou, then to the Philippines. He was arrested in Batavia, modern Jakarta. He was, had to be ransomed out. He was then on a vessel which sailed all the way around Africa, back up and into Bergen, the seaport in Norway, which is where many of the Dutch East Indies ships landed before they actually then uh, returned home. And so it was a very significant trading port. Uh, then Hamburg, then Amsterdam, Antwerp, Brussels and Rome. And this is actually, again, a con contemporaneous uh, painting. I think it's fascinating that we can glibly, if you like, I'm being glib, well, I'm, I'm not trying to be so, but um, we've got these amazing books downstairs. Someone had to take the knowledge or the parchment or the paper or the maps and survive a journey like this in the 17th century, shipwreck, pirates, storms, scurvy, a luggage, a trunk falling over and hitting you in the head, as happened to Philippe Couplet, who was the author of Confucius Sonarum Philosophers, who died at sea. So yeah, the fact that we have these things is amazing, that these libraries actually exist and are able to preserve and disseminate the knowledge which makes it all the more important for us to actually seek to help them as well. Conscious of time, moving right along. This is uh, Athanasius Kircher in the 1660s. He also published a very important thing, and now the Chinese have entered the story. Paul Hsu on the right, he was the scholar who helped translate Euclid's geometry. 
a point I'm going to make as I move towards conclusion is the fact that it's okay to have the books, but we've got to know what we're looking at. We actually have to know, are we, are we reading the right thing? Was the person who transmitted the knowledge, was the translator a traitor in the famous Italian saying? So we have the books, but one has to actually know how to read them. We have to actually be able to read them critically to evaluate. And the clue here is that the printers in Europe, you can see on the right-hand side, the upper right-hand side, It's by a beginning learner, a beginner learning Chinese, or someone who's simply copying. Here we have the image of the Confucius Sonarum philosophers. The Jesuit scholars spent really from the time of Ritchie in the 1580s, so it's a good close to a hundred year project. Generations of scholars worked on this project translating. They made the decision to put Gong Fu Zi. The, uh, this man's name, they, tra they transliterated it into Latin as Confucius. So our use of the word Confucius at book plate or in your book clubs or just in general conversation is homage to the work of these people over a 100-year period. And uh, they published and dedicated it to Louis XIV, highlighting the role of the French in this exchange at this period of time. What I want to finish on is to make the point that it's amazing that we have an exhibition like Celestial Empire. It's a great achievement for Dr. Dr. Woolley, for the work of the Centre for China and the World, for the work of the National Library and the National Library of Beijing, uh, of China. Um, it's fantastic because of those who've helped preserve, collect and now disseminate this information. A challenge for us all is to use these books and, as Richie said, be conscious of the order and the chaos. Listen to the demeanour because there are good questions we can ask. A question I'll leave you with if you're Chinese readers is you can see here from this image, you can see on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side are the collections of the Chinese classics, the major books that every scholar had to study, the book of... Um, you know, the Spring and Autumn Annals, the Great Learning, the uh, Doctrine of the Mean. Um, the, here is the Analects of Confucius, which was uh, bringing all these things in terms of interconnectedness, which my favourite translation is uh, the one by the great uh, scholar Pierre Rickman, Simon Lay, who translated years ago, who also taught at the ANU, and I believe was the teacher of uh, one of the professors down the back, uh, Dr Rigby. Um, but the interesting thing about this image here, they have clearly trans the knowledge that the characters are read right to left. So when they write the name, they are writing it in the European form, a name in a European, Europeanized version, left to right. <coughs> On all of these, Chundio, as an example, that character there is that word Chun. That uh, autumn is Chio here. So it's, if you like a chiasm or an X, there's a trans transposition because of the way we read versus the way the Chinese. which is the Analects of Confucius, kind of like the book that most people know in terms of Confucian scholarship. And so if you're not looking, you'll miss the fact that there's critical errors in the transmission of the knowledge that is now being disseminated. Libraries and those of us who read and interact with these material objects, be they digitised or otherwise, therefore have a great role in ongoing conversation, not just about the subject matter, but about the context, about the patrons, about the funding and about all the things that make up a library and a community that gathers as we do on this night. Thank you so much. <laughs>